0: I'm Bonnie Glaser, director of the Indo-Pacific Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. China's relationship with North Korea was once described by Mao Zedong as close as lips and teeth. North Korea is China's only treaty ally, and under that treaty, Beijing has a commitment to defend North Korea if it is attacked. Yet there are many sources of friction between the two countries including North Korea's nuclear weapons program, which China has long opposed, and China's close relationship with South Korea, which is among the many reasons that Pyongyang is wary of its bigger neighbor. Recent developments regionally and globally are causing Beijing to adjust its policy toward North Korea. The war in Ukraine is one factor that may be driving China and North Korea closer. Another factor is growing distrust and intensifying competition between the United States and China, which have hampered cooperation on numerous issues, including North Korea's nuclear and missile programs. On May 26 last year, China, along with Russia, vetoed a draft UN Security Council resolution aimed at tightening sanctions against North Korea the Security Council had previously unanimously adopted all 10 resolutions against North Korea beginning in 2006. How will Beijing respond if Pyongyang conducts a nuclear test in the coming months? To discuss China's evolving policy toward North Korea, I'm delighted to welcome Yun Sun, Yun is a senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia program and director of the China program at the Stimson Center in Washington, D.C., where she works on Chinese foreign policy. Welcome to the China Global Podcast, Yun. Thank you for having me, Bonnie. So Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un met five times in 2018 to 2019, although, of course, they haven't met face to face since uh, since June of 2019. They continue to communicate, and at least some of their correspondence has been publicly reported. So, for example, on the 74th anniversary of the founding of the Workers' Party of Korea, that was in September last year, Xi Jinping sent a missive to Kim emphasizing the, quote, important consensus on planning the blueprint for the development of relations between the two parties and countries. The two leaders also exchanged messages on the 73rd anniversary of the PRC's founding and the CCP's 20th Party Congress last year. So how would you evaluate the state of their bilateral relationship today? And what is the role and position of North Korea in China's foreign policy?
1: Thank you, Bonnie. Those are great questions. And as in earlier today, the North Korean official news agency also disclosed that Kim Jong-un was the first world leader to send a letter of condolence to China, especially to Xi Jinping after the passing of Jiang Zemin, China's former president. So I think there is a very clear indicator that both countries are trying to maintain the good relationship and trying to portray a positive trajectory of bilateral relations. I think Moscow's characterization of china queer relations as one that's between lips and teeth, are still valid today. And that is still the best term to capture some of the most acute Chinese threat perceptions and China's considerations related to North Korea. So North Korea is seen as a fundamental and a critical, if not a core piece, a core link in China's national security, especially uh, its national security in Northeast Asia. And the view in China has always been with the fall of, uh, of North Korea, then China will have to face the direct consequences of U.S. and its allies on China's border, which if you think about it, given today's technology, it doesn't really make that much big of a difference. But I think for China, the practical consideration and the psychological effect of having North Korea there and having North Korea on China's side on many of these issues are still important and not critical for uh, for China in its assessment of national security. And as for the state of the Bad relations, well, it's certainly not at its worst state, which we did see after the inauguration of Kim Jong-un in 2011. And I would say it's a, what people call the long winter of China DPRK relations from 2012 to basically the March of 2018. And that was a long six years of uh, of a winter. But it's not as its bad state either. We've seen uh, Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il, had much closer and a much more intimate and amicable relationship with Beijing. So I would say today the relationship is more positive than where it was during the first six years under Kim Jong un's reign. But it definitely still has a lot of catch up to do compared to what his father and his grandfather had with China historically.
0: Under Article 2 of the 1961 China-North Korea Treaty of Friendship, Cooperation, and Mutual Assistance, Beijing has an obligation to defend North Korea in the event of unprovoked aggression. And of course, that's the only country that China has this kind of treaty with. And there were rumors that the treaty might not be renewed a few years ago. It has been renewed twice before, and it came up for renewal in 2021, And some people that I talked to in China thought maybe the mutual defense clause might be excised, But then the treaty just remained intact and it was renewed unchanged for another 20 years in that year in 2021. So how do you view the significance of the decision to renew the treaty? And are you certain that if North Korea started a war on the peninsula, that the People's Liberation Army, would automatically come to the defense of North Korea?
1: That's a really intriguing question because this discussion about this treaty and this renewal has been something that I have been trying to look into. Because if you look at the text of the treaty, it doesn't actually have a clause on renewal, whether it's automatic or it's every 20 years. In the treaty itself, what it says is the treaty will remain effective until both sides reach an agreement over its revision or over its termination. So in July, I believe it was July 7th of 2021, the foreign ministry spokesperson Wang Bing was asked this question during the regular press conference, and his answer was exactly the same. His answer was that this treaty will remain effective until we decide to change it or terminate it. So I think that is regarded as a clear official statement regarding the the validity of the treaty and a Bufo, that the treaty is renewed every 20 years. But the fact remains that this treaty remains effective because the two parties have not, uh, to our knowledge, have not negotiated to either terminate it or revise it. So the treaty is still intact, is still in, in place. And if the question is, why has China not revised its treaty with, uh, with North Korea? I think, first off, for China, the threat perception of our Northeast Asia has not fundamentally changed. Maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when the U.S. was much more eager to engage uh, China on the issue of North Korea denuclearization, Beijing probably saw more incentive to talk to Americans and to discuss the potential approaches to denuclearization of North Korea. But given the great power competition was strategic competition between U.S. and China today, I can hardly imagine the Chinese have any incentive to initiate a change of the security status with the security equilibrium in Northeast Asia, especially on the Korean Peninsula. And this is particularly true given the current South Korean UN administration, which is a conservative government and which has demonstrated a much clearer determination compared to his two predecessors to strengthen his, uh, his country's alignment or alliance and extended deterrence with, uh, with the United States. So I would say, faced with the uncertainty of the security situation on the Korean Peninsula, the Chinese will be the last one to initiate any change to the existing security architecture in the region. And this treaty with North Korea is regarded as one of the critical pieces of that security architecture.
0: And are you certain that if there was a conflict, that China would come to North Korea's defense? Oh, they will. I think they will. I think they will come to North Korea's defense.
1: But it's the question is like, well, if there is a, you're the expert on this, if there is a conflict over Taiwan, how and when is U.S. going to come to Taiwan's defense, right? So there are many options and many scenarios and many, uh, many schedules, many agendas. So I think the same exists with North Korea. It depends on how the war starts. It depends on whether... U.S. is, for example, we've seen this tabletop exercise many times, whether U.S. is going to work with South Korea to jointly send troops into North Korea across the uh, 38th parallel. It also depends on what has happened to the North Korean regime. Is it a coup or is it a sudden, say, a health crisis of the North Korean leader? So I think all these different scenarios dictate different contingency plans. And I think it is safe to say that the Chinese do have those planning in place.
0: So China is, of course, the main provider of economic assistance to North Korea, as well as its main trading partner. And even before the pandemic, more than 95 percent of North Korea's total trade was with China. Pyongyang imports raw materials for agricultural fertilizer from China, and China has long provided About, I think we believe the amount has remained relatively steady, half a million tons of crude oil annually by pipeline. So we know the trade across their border all but stopped during the pandemic. It continued by sea, and it's recently resumed across the land border. So it's clear that North Korea's dependency on China is quite high. I would guess it's increasing. And this dependency provides Beijing with potential leverage. And I wonder from China's perspective, did they see it as providing leverage? And if so, what might they do with that leverage?
1: (laughs) This is like the decades long debate with the Chinese, right? Well, you have leverage. And the Chinese are like, yeah, but we cannot use those leverage. And we say that, no, 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 you can't. You can absolutely use those leverage. And the Chinese say that, well, no, 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 we really can't. So um, so I feel that this debate has been going on for a while. But I think look deeper into the origin of the Chinese position, you will see why they see their influence, whether it's economic or security, as unusable in the case of North Korea. So first, why does China provide these assistance to North Korea? It's not because North Korea is or is not developing nuclear weapons. The reason that China provides these assistance to North Korea is because North Korea is regarded as a piece of China's national security. To safeguard North Korea's regime survival is to safeguard China's own national security, right? So to provide these assistance is directly supporting, well, we, we call it a lifeline, of the the North Korean government. And we all know it has been the lifeline of the North Korean government. But if the reason that China provides these assistance is to prop up, to keep the regime in North Korea afloat so that it can act as a safeguard or a piece to protect China's national security, then this leverage cannot be used. Because once the Chinese drop those assistance, the North Korea is no longer going to be there or the goal of propping up the North Korean regime is going to be defeated. So I think from that perspective, if we understand why China is providing the assistance, we will understand why China cannot, in any circumstance, in most circumstances, drop those assistance to North Korea. Not because the Chinese support the nuclear development or the nuclear weapons program of North Korea, but because China sees North Korean survival as serving a completely different purpose for China.
0: You were talking earlier about the period of greater friction in China's relations with North Korea. And so I wanted to ask a question about that relationship during the Trump administration and the perhaps more enduring impact. Because President Trump really made a concerted effort to strike a deal with Kim Jong-un, which eventually failed. And at the time, uh, Beijing was unsurprisingly quite concerned about the possibility of a breakthrough in the U.S.-North Korea relationship, that really could have had a deleterious impact on Chinese interests. So if we look at that episode today, what do you think its impact was on China's thinking about North Korea? And did it influence Chinese policy in any way?
1: I think that episode really reinforced or confirmed to the Chinese that a unilateral U.S. engagement with North Korea or a bilateral rapprochement between U.S. and North Korea is impossible. I think back in the spring of 2018, when the North Korean officials presented a letter from Kim Jong-un to President Trump, suggesting a meeting, I think at that point, after six years, six plus years of uh, deterioration of their relations, the Chinese leader was concerned. There was a very strong element of exclusion anxiety that oh we have shunned North Korea for six years. What if North Korea goes ahead and reach a deal with the United States, and then all the nightmare, all everything that we have feared about the U.S. being on our border or the U.S. island being on our border will become true. So I think that exclusion anxiety contributed to that the frenzy of diplomacy we saw that China invited Kim Jong Un to China I think for three four times within a year, but the unfortunate result of the uh, overture or the uh, adventure of the Trump administration to engage North Korea and in the attempt to reach a deal over denuclearization and some level of diplomatic normalization or a, the beginning of the conversation about the peace treaty or peace regime turned out to be unsuccessful. So I think that fundamentally removed a Chinese concern that if Trump cannot do it, there's no other U.S. president will be ever able to even try it. It means that unilateral engagement with North Korea and try to reach a deal with North Korea without the participation of China. So I think after that, this, this improvement of relations between China and North Korea is also a manifestation of that conviction that so North Korea has realized or have come to terms with the reality that no matter how they try, U.S. is not going to meet their demand without North Korea giving a credible plan about their denuclearization. So they have to take a step back and re-examine their relationship with China and acknowledge the fact that China will, for the foreseeable future, remain their most consequential patient. So I think that, in a way, has had a positive effect over the China-DPRK relations. But of course, you know this much better than I do, between China and North Korea, there's plenty of skepticism, plenty of criticism, plenty of uh, suspicion about each other's intention and about each other's strategy and a lot of disagreements. But I think at this point, it's a two size agree that North Korea does not have better option. Yes, I, uh, I,
0: I agree with that. Great analysis. So let's talk a little bit about the U.S.-China relationship and the issue of North Korea and, of course, its nuclear weapons was long on the positive side of the ledger in the U.S.-China relationship because they both opposed North Korea's nuclear weapons program, coordinated closely on policy surrounding the six-party talks between 2003 and 2009. Yet in my conversations with U.S. officials now from the Biden administration, they tell me that North Korea is really not an issue, that the two sides are working on together, that there seem to be very dim prospects for any cooperation. And as I mentioned earlier, of course, China has been actually vetoing up at the UN any resolutions that would tighten sanctions, whereas in the past, China supported them. So what's changed? Are U.S. and Chinese interests now in conflict on the Korean Peninsula, and more broadly, how has intensifying competition between the U.S. and China influenced Beijing's approach to North Korea?
1: That's a great question. I think what has changed is that the U.S. mentality has changed. In the past, if we look at the cooperation between U.S. and China on the issue of North Korea, it's mostly initiated by the United States. And the Chinese have seen this initiation, or the U.S., what they call it the asks on North Korea, as a great opportunity, because well, you want something from us, then let's trade. Let's talk about what you can do for us. So this transactional mentality has been quite dominant in China's dealing with the United States on the issue of North Korea for decades. To the extent that, at least somewhere around 2010, 2011, the U.S. side started to call China a dishonest broker. Well, China is dishonest because China is not negotiating um, purely about the denuclearization of North Korea, but in a way that will be in China's national interest as well. So I'm not surprised that there is no discussion about cooperation between U.S. and China on North Korea. But that could change if and when North Korea conducts the seventh nuclear test, because when that happens, we know that the region is going to be in a frenzy again, and there will be a coordinated or aligned effort, international collective effort to punish North Korea. And in that event, China's cooperation or China's support of any potential U.S. uh, Security Council resolution will be necessary. So I wouldn't say that the book on that has completely closed, but it depends on the development in North Korea and especially in terms of its next nuclear test. Then in terms of whether the American and Chinese interests are in conflict in the Korean Peninsula, I would say that not completely, but for a majority of their national interest on the Korean Peninsula, there are significant or fundamental conflicts. Because if you look at China's outlook for the Korean Peninsula, the most important question that China has is that, well, if North Korea denuclearizes, what is going to happen to U.S. security allies with South Korea? And what's going to happen to U.S. troops on the Green Peninsula? So U.S. will say, well, that's none of your business. That's between us and South Korea. But then the Chinese will say, well, then your position is disingenuous. You are asking us to abandon North Korea, but without giving us an endgame or a future that we can aspire to. Because if North Korea is to fall and there is a unified Korean Peninsula aligned with the United States, how is that in China's national interest? So I think these debates have been clarified again and again over the past, I would say, two decades over the nuclear issue. And ostensibly, all the debate is about North Korean nuclear issue. But eventually, it is a debate about what is the future security architecture and security outlook of the Korean Peninsula. So, on that specific issue, I don't think that the Chinese and the US see eye to eye with each other. And there is a fundamental conflict of their interest on that specific question. And the intensifying competition between US and China, while well, like I mentioned, is being seen as great news for, for North Korea because the strategic utility of North Korea for China has enhanced greatly, both as a critical piece of China's national security in Northeast Asia, but also potentially as a bargaining chip for China against the United States. And we know that the Biden administration has said, well, we want to pursue cooperation with China where we can. And the Chinese mentality is that, well, if you want us to cooperate with you on this, then you better reconsider your position on this. And Taiwan, of course, is always on the top of the list. So I think given the strategic competition between U.S. and China, the likelihood of China making major and meaningful concessions on North Korea has significantly diminished for the foreseeable future. And there is a tendency in China to hoard North Korea as a strategic leverage vis-a-vis the United States in light of the intensifying competition with Washington.
0: I'm interested in the fact that you are quite confident that if North Korea conducts the seventh nuclear test, that Beijing will condemn it and will go back to the UN, work with the international community and tighten sanctions. I'm a little bit less sanguine. I think that in the past, China has worked with the international community, obviously, because it served its own interest. They believe that these tests increase tensions on the peninsula, increase the risk of war, increase the potential for nuclear proliferation, and pose a threat to security, especially in China's Northeast, where residents have worried about contamination of soil and water. So I guess I'd like to ask why you're so confident. And are you really certain that Beijing hasn't at this point basically tacitly accepted North Korea as a nuclear weapons state because of the overall geopolitical context, this change, which we've been talking about?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, great observation. Well, I didn't say that China will collaborate with the international community on condemning and cooperating with the the two impose more sanctions on North Korea. As said, if at one, North Korea has a seventh nuclear test, then the international community will need China to at least not oppose that effort. So if that effort is going to be successful, China's cooperation will have to be acquired one way or the other. And whether we can acquire that cooperation, I think it still remains to be seen. But I can say that it will require the Biden administration to strategize quite carefully and work vigorously. And considering taking full consideration of China's mentality or the Chinese preference for transaction, meaning that something's got to give if and when that happens. So I think for China's position on UN, if you look at the historical record, whenever there was a nuclear test by North Korea, China has always supported some level of condemnation or some level of sanctions against North Korea. That does not necessarily apply to ballistic missile test, and that does not always apply to the due use, for example, satellite launch. And in terms of other missile launches, like non-ballistic missile or short-range missile, there's a strong argument in China that North Korea also, North Korea is under uh, under the UN sanction resolution, North Korea still has the natural right to national defense. So not all the missile tests by North Korea is regarded as illegal by the UN, at least not by the Chinese policy community. And I think at this historical juncture, a critical piece in China's position at UN on North Korea is this issue of who has been at fault or who's responsible for North Korea's publication. And the ostensible answer, I think our answer, of course, is well, it's North Korea, right? But I think the Chinese logic is that, well, wait, North Korea had a moratorium on both nuclear tests and missile tests for a number of years under the Trump administration. And that, quote, quote, Good behavior was never rewarded. So for the Chinese, they would say that, while well, in 2019, China and Russia jointly initiated a UN resolution to uh, draft a resolution to reduce or to, to ease some of the sanctions on North Korea in order to reciprocate their so-called good behavior, their moratorium on the two tests, the nuclear test and missile test. But that resolution or that effort never came to fruition because of the Western opposition. So I think for the Chinese observers and for the Chinese government, there's a strong conviction that North Korea is something good and the international community, especially the United States, never reciprocated. So therefore, what do you expect North Korea to do? Continue their good behavior and continue to receive no reward? Or they will resume their previous path of provocation? Of course, provocation. So I think that's how the Chinese see the logic of the North Korean calculus. And they, unfortunately, I think they are sympathetic to the North Korean choice that North Korea, other than provocation, could not get the attention from the United States and could not get the international community to reciprocate to their previous good behavior. But of course, from our perspective, it does not justify bad behavior, right? Well, provocation is never the way to go. But then again, we're talking about North Korea, which is not necessarily the most um, conventional player that we are seeing in international politics.
0: So I want to ask you one question about South Korea, even though we could do an entire uh, another podcast uh, on South Korea. Maybe we will in the future. But I wanted to connect South Korea to the nuclear question. We know that South Korea's president, Yoon Sook-yeol, has said that if North Korea's nuclear threat grows, that his country may build a nuclear arsenal of its own or ask the United States to redeploy nuclear weapons in the South. How are Chinese experts reacting to the increasing calls in South Korea to develop its own nuclear arsenal and to U.S.-South Korean discussions to take measures to strengthen the U.S. extended deterrence?
1: Well, both are seen as very bad news for China, whether it's South Korea goes nuclear or South Korea strengthening its uh, its extended deterrence with the United States, because neither is going to be in China's interest, right? If we think about the SAD deployment back in 2016, one of the reasons that the Chinese opposed it so vehemently was because China believed that that SAD would be used on China to observe China's own military activities and provide those information to the United States. Which is why that, I think, even when North Korea does conduct the seventh nuclear test, the biggest damage that it's going to do is not on China-North Korea relations, it's on China-South Korea relations. Because it's going to make South Korean government make demand to Beijing that Beijing cannot answer and Beijing cannot deliver. And as a result, South Korea will turn again to the United States to strengthen its extended deterrence and to to enhance its national security. And the result of that, as we have seen in 2016, will inevitably be perceived as a threat to China's national security. So the biggest damage, if you think about all the efforts that China has made in the past 10 years towards the Korean Peninsula, I think Jun Pak is absolutely correct in her King's report. South Korea is a linchpin that China has been trying to pull. Because South Korea, but well, North Korea is already on China's side, right? So for China to make advancement, to gain ground on the Korean Peninsula, the only hope is to pry South Korea further away from the U.S. and make it, absorb it into a pro-China orbit. And I think the Chinese saw themselves as having had a significant success under President Park geun and also President Moon Jae-in. But now with the new UN administration in South Korea, the South Korean government is already, from its day one, inclined to strengthening its alliance with the United States. So a nuclear test by North Korea is only going to push South Korea further away from Beijing. And I think that's China's biggest headache. And I think compared to that political consideration, the technical consideration or the concern about South Korea going nuclear is much less significant because, well, we know that South Korea has been talking about it, but it's going to be a very, let's just say, it's going to be a very long way and also a very difficult journey for South Korea to go nuclear. And South Korea will have to consider that, well, it will also be violation of non-proliferation treaty. And it will also become, I don't know um, whether it will be willing to accept it. Well, if we cause North Korea prior because of its uh, nuclear weapons program, then wouldn't South Korea be put in the same category? As for extended deterrence, I think what the Chinese see is that well, extended deterrence or strengthen extended deterrence is more likely in the case of South Korea. But unless the Chinese can come up with a satisfactory response to the North Korean provocation, especially on the uh, seventh nuclear test, I don't think there's much China can do to stop South Korea from going in that direction. So this is a part of the uh, of the consequences that unfortunately China will have to swallow.
0: We've been talking with Yun Sun, who is a senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia Program and director of the China Program at the Stimson Center. Great discussion! Thanks so much for being with us today, Yun.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Fanny. Hope that was interesting.